1: Welcome, everyone, to another episode of The Most Notorious Podcast. I'm Eric Rivenis. Great to have you here, as always. I am very pleased to have as my guest today Peter Manso. His writing appears regularly in The New York Times and The Washington Post, and he is the curator of American religious history at the Smithsonian Institution. He is also the author of numerous books, including novels, memoirs, and travelogues. The book he's here to discuss today is called The Apparitionists, A Tale of Phantoms, Fraud, Photography, and the Man Who Captured Lincoln's Ghost. Thank you so much for joining me.
0: It's great to be here. Thanks for having me.
1: So it's a great book. In 19th century Spiritualism is such a fascinating topic, and I was so excited to learn that it was such a major part of this this book that you've written. What inspired you to tackle the subject of spiritualism?
0: Well, I find that each of my books uh, arises from a, a question that lingers from a previous book. And so before I began writing The Apparitionists, I had published a book in 2015 called One Nation Under Gods, which tried to be a 500-year history of minority religious influence in America. Uh, So going back and trying to find the earliest mention of Buddhists in the 19th century or Hindus and trying to trace out how these small religious groups had influences far beyond their numbers uh, in American culture. So... After I published that book, and it was a, a fairly big book, I tried to cover a lot of ground in it, but when I finished it, I looked back over it and I realized that I somehow didn't write about spiritualism at all. Uh, there was this, this this gap in what I had written about in the 19th century that should have been about spiritualism. So having some second thoughts about how I might have approached that book, I began to think, what would I have written about, about spiritualism? had I included it in that previous book. And I tried to to frame all those stories of various minority religious communities uh, through the experiences of individuals, because that's to me what is the most uh, compelling part of history writing and of storytelling. And thinking along those lines, I began to read through 19th century newspaper accounts about spiritualism and in doing so, I happened upon the story of this man, William Mumler, uh, the most notorious spirit photographer of his day, uh, but really part of a large cast of, of fascinating characters in American history who were part of this movement of spiritualism, which we now think of as only being about um, parlor tricks and seances and people trying to uh, levitate tables. But really, at the time, it was a, a large and influential religious movement that was a significant part of many people's lives in the mid to late 19th century. So as soon as I found that one character, this one individual, William Mumler, and realized that he opened up this whole world, I decided that it, it, I was glad that I had not included a chapter about spiritualism in my, whole, in my previous book because I thought it could be then the subject for, for my next project, for a next book-length uh, narrative nonfiction work.
1: Absolutely. So this is also a book about early photography and how it intersects with spiritualism in the mid-19th century in a very unusual way. Let's start with that, if you don't mind. How did photography begin, and how did it grow through the 19th century in the United States?
0: That was really the second thing that most intrigued me about this story about William Mumler, is that it it turned out it wasn't only about spiritualism. It was about these early days of photography, uh, both... in the art and technology of photography globally and specifically its, its role in, in American history. And so I realized that Mumler, uh, in addition to being a member of a cast of spiritualist characters, he's also a member of this fascinating crew of early photographers working in the 1850s and 60s. And all of these photographers, to some degree, uh, or another, uh, were, were dabbling with the ways in which this new art helped Americans think about death in new ways. And this was true in part because in the early days of photography, it was thought that it would be impossible to take human portraits uh, with cameras because the time at which uh, an early photograph had to be exposed, uh, exposed to an unmoving image, uh, was measured in minutes rather than seconds and so you would have the attempt to take portraits of of individuals would require them to remain absolutely still or else you would only get a very blurred image so it was thought that it would be impossible to take a clear image of a human face for example but it turned out that there were some humans uh, who could stay very still and those were those who happened to already be dead and so uh the, the phenomenon of posthumous photography became quite popular uh, in the mid-19th century, the idea that you could take a picture of a lost loved one before you bury them, and then the, ever after, you would have something to remember them by. And I think it's worth remembering just how revolutionary this was in, in human experience. Before that, uh, when you buried someone, they were gone. Your memory of their face uh, began to fade immediately. Only those who were wealthy enough to employ a portrait painter uh, might be able to hold on to their features of their grandfather or their grandmother, or or most tragically of, of lost children. Um, at a time of much more frequent infant mortality, you might have a portrait painted, a miniature painted of a lost child. Now with the advent of photography, everyone uh, who had a few dollars could, could take part in this, could find a way to preserve memory. Permanently, so all of these early photographers were were experimenting with this idea of of how to hold on to a human face, how to hold on to lost loved ones. So it naturally had some overlap uh, with the realm of of spiritualism, with the realm of trying to communicate with the dead. Uh, they were different ways of trying to do the same thing of holding on to people after they were gone. And at the time, William Mumler, the spirit photographer, began working in the 1860s. This was also a moment when the Civil War was beginning. Uh, Mumler was taking his first photographs at the very time uh, the Battle of Antietam and the Battle of Gettysburg were being fought, when more Americans than ever before were being killed in battle. Uh, And as a consequence, more Americans than ever before were in mourning and wondering how to hold on uh, to their memories of their lost loved ones. So it became this natural confluence of, of developments in American history the birth and growth of spiritualism, and the birth and growth of photography. And that's the story that that I try to tell as a point and counterpoint in the book. I didn't want only to tell the story of William Mumler, I also wanted to tell the story of people like Matthew Brady, uh, the great Civil War photographer who's credited as being the first one out in the battlefield taking pictures of the war dead where they lay, along with um his protege and then rival Alexander Gar- Gardner uh, who was doing much the same. So these figures that that are remembered as the the pioneers of photojournalism, they were in some ways peers of this man William Mumler who's remembered as one of the great frauds of the later 19th century.
1: And a lot of these famous 19th century photographers can trace their beginnings to Samuel Morse, right?
0: Yes. Samuel Morris is, of course, most of all remembered as as the inventor of the telegraph, or at least the popularizer of the telegraph. Uh, But he, like a lot of these early photographers, had been originally trained as a painter. And it was the idea that photography could lend itself to a new type of portraiture that most intrigued him about its development. So Samuel Morse actually traveled to France to meet with Daguerre, who's credited as the inventor of photography, and learn the process from him directly. He then brought it back, uh, and through his work in uh, his photo studios in New York City, uh, really popularized the art first in New York and it spread out around the country.
1: Could you define spiritualism for us? And talk about the origins. Did it start with the Fox sisters? Or was there another person or event that brought it into the mainstream?
0: I like to think of the Fox sisters as as the creation myth of spiritualism in America, which is not to say that it's it's not a true story, but it is certainly a story that has been told and told so much that it becomes sort of the canon of how spiritualism came to be. So, of course, the story of the Fox sisters, are these three sisters in upstate New York who are in their parents' farmhouse outside of Rochester, and perhaps out of boredom one day, they begin to tell their parents that they are hearing noises in the walls and they convinced their parents that the noises are being made by the spirits of the dead perhaps of a by the spirit of a, a man who was murdered in the house before they moved into it well their parents became so intrigued by this story that they invited their neighbors over to hear and then their neighbors told their friends and soon dozens and then hundreds of people were crowding uh in this little village outside of Rochester New York to hear these taps and knocks in in the Fox family household and the popularity was such that the Fox sisters soon took it on the road. It, they could no longer crowd enough people in to hear the rappings in their home. So they would go and perform this experience of being able to hear and decipher the sounds of uh, disembodied spirits around the country. So this then really started a movement with other people trying to get in on the act, presenting their own way of communicating with the dead in a very theatrical fashion uh, which then sparked a, a counter movement of those trying to debunk them but this was all part of a um seen much more broadly in, in terms of whether or not it, you'd consider this a religious movement i, I really would and it's part of a, a broader moment in american religious history that's known as the second great awakening which is generally thought of as a christian movement that starts in the 1820s and goes to the 1840s and 50s and it is this way of um trying to be religious uh, in a new and distinctly American way, trying to have these emotional, cathartic, uh, often out-of-doors experiences, leaving behind the um, the colonial churches, let's say, the Anglican church, Puritan churches, and having these new types of religious experiences. So that all was happening mainly in, in Christian churches, and it was transforming uh, the denominations that had existed in America and creating entirely new denominations. But another strain of that is happening outside of Christianity altogether uh, in, in movements like spiritualism, uh, which were part of the, a great flowering of many different religious expressions that ha- that were happening, particularly in upstate New York.
1: Spiritualism still exists now, of course, right? but But in a much different form than how it existed in the mid-19th century.
0: Yes. Yeah, it's it's an interesting history to trace because so spiritualism as as a movement called such, called spiritualism, had this flowering in the 19th century. It was really born late 1840s, uh, became most popular in the 1850s when it was estimated by some that a third of Americans were, were active spiritualists. Uh, and then it seemed to die down a bit and came back really in part because of the Civil War, because of this experience of loss by so many Americans and this hunger for being able to communicate with the dead. But then it sort of has a downward slope again and continues to do so until uh, not by coincidence until around the First World War, when, again, many Americans and people around the world, because it is a global movement by this time, are hungry for this contact with lost loved ones, many of those who've been lost in the war. After that, spiritualism as such uh, begins to fade away, but I would argue that it actually spreads out and and colonizes other religious traditions. Um, you would often find spiritualist meetings happening in the basements of churches at this time and, and the, the, name dropping away because of its connotations of fraud, uh, that had attached to it through the period of the, of the 1860s and 70s with people debunking seances and becoming just a, a part of many different types of religious expressions. This active idea that you can communicate with the dead, that there's a way to cross over the veil between Uh, the world of living and the world of those who who have gone.
1: The Fox sisters at at some point would confess, correct, That, that everything had been a hoax.
0: Yes. So, yes, the Fox sisters, at least one of them very publicly, came forward and said this was all a scam all along. But interestingly, the debunking, the admissions, it never really affected the popularity of spiritualism among those who truly believed in it. Because those who believed in it were not believing in it because the Fox sisters said it was so. They were believing in in it because it spoke to a need that they had and to experiences that they had very often. This was a a very emotional movement. There there are efforts to try to put an intellectual veneer over it. And um, one figure to to really mention in that regard is Andrew Jackson Davis, uh, who – Sort of took the revelation of the Fox sisters and gave it this intellectual structure that made it more of a, of a complex theology that you could write lectures about and deliver to lecture halls rather than um, saying that you were actively hearing spirits at that time. Uh, but for the most part, this was really an emotion driven movement that required those who had experienced loss themselves to have these types of experiences. And these experiences may have been inspired by the stories Of people like the Fox sisters, but it really came down to that really first person individual experience, which is fascinating that no matter how many of the luminaries of the movement admitted that it had been a fraud all along, it did not stop those who believed in it from from believing in their own experiences.
1: So back to William H. Mumler, can you tell us about his circumstances when he created what would become a very Well-known photograph, a photograph that would propel him into infamy.
0: William Mumler was a um, silver engraver and a dabbler in, in chemistry who was living in Boston in the 1860s. And he had begun to take up the hobby of photography, as many people had at the time it was becoming easier to engage with the art of photography. Uh, photo studios were proliferating in cities all around the country. Uh, many more people were having their, their photo taken, so they understood what happened when you went into a photo portrait studio. And it so happened that there was a photo studio down the block from where he worked as a photo engraver uh, that was owned by a woman who he was quite taken with. And he began to spend time there, in part just to be around uh, this woman, Hannah Green Stewart. And he learned the art of photography from her, uh, helped her organize the chemicals in her developing room. And one day he was there by himself, and he decided to practice by taking a self-portrait, which is to say... Uh, standing in front of the camera himself and waiting long enough for the glass plate, uh, which was the way you took photographs at this time, waiting long enough for it to, to develop with his own image on it. So he did this, and he thought he did a good job of it. But when he developed the glass plate, he saw that though he was alone in the photo studio at the time, he was not alone in the photograph. Sitting next to him in a chair that he swore had been empty, uh, was this figure of a girl who looked like she had been made of light, a sort of translucent figure of a girl, perhaps an adolescent. At first, he wondered if he must have made a mistake. Perhaps he had used a glass plate that he hadn't properly cleaned. Uh, but the more he looked at it, he thought, this does not seem like a photograph I had previously taken. This seems like a new image next to me uh, in this supposed self-portrait that he took. So, the woman who owned the photo studio, Hannah Green Stewart, persuaded him that the girl in the image must be his recently deceased cousin who had come to visit him uh, from the world to come.
1: And the way he told the story was that he was slightly embarrassed about this photograph. He certainly didn't believe that it was real. And he was shocked and humiliated when the story broke across the country. And then he was equally surprised when this photograph was accepted by intellectuals within the spiritualist community. Do do I have that right?
0: Yes. So William Mumler, before this experience, was someone who who said that he was not a spiritualist. He was someone who actually mocked spiritualists. And so as he began to show this photograph around, it was really a joke to him uh, that anyone would take it seriously. He thought it was absurd that someone would would think that it was true that you could take a photograph of a disembodied spirit. And so when this photograph began to make the rounds in spiritualist communities, which with his name attached and moreover with the name of the owner of the portrait studio attached, Hannah Green Stewart, uh, he He was embarrassed. He was concerned that he was going to ruin the the reputation of this woman who uh, owned a legitimate portrait studio. And so when it was picked up by spiritualist newspapers that uh, William Mumler had taken the photograph of a ghost, uh, he rushed to the photo studio to try to warn Hannah what had happened, that people might soon be coming to see if there were more of these types of photographs. But when he arrived at the photo studio, it was already crowded with spiritualists. And he was so concerned about what Hannah would think of him that he rushed in. Uh, and when she saw him, uh, she announced his presence. Here comes Mr. Mumler and everyone gives out a cheer because that's who they were there to see. And far from embarrassing Hannah, uh, it actually brought the two of them together. They became business partners and soon thereafter they married. Um, So soon Mr. And Mrs. Mumler became the top spirit photographers in
1: Boston. So Mumler really leverages this to his advantage.
0: Well, it becomes big business uh, with Boston as really the capital of spiritualist America at the time. Uh, Spiritualists, first of all, want to come and have their spirit portrait taken. He's always careful to say that he can't guarantee it because he doesn't order the spirits to be there. They come and go of their own free will, which only uh, increases his believability uh, because People would think, oh, if this guy is a fraud, then he's going to give you a spirit photograph every time. But he said he couldn't control it. Sometimes they come, sometimes they don't. And more and more people would come to him to buy a spirit photograph. And spirit photographs were were running, um, in terms of their expense, they cost about ten times the price of just a portrait of, of yourself. So this proved to be quite good business for a while. But it also brought out people who didn't believe in what he was doing, including spiritualists. Spiritualists suggested, uh, we believe this might be possible, but something about William Mumler just didn't smell right to them. They just did not believe that the spirit photographs he was taking were legitimate. So he was, um, for a couple of years in Boston, he was the toast of the town. But unfortunately, those who were trying to find him out eventually caught up with him in Boston. Uh, and it came about because number of the spirits shown in his photographs, purported to be the souls of the dead, uh, were recognized by people in Boston as being quite alive and walking around town. Uh, So some were were quite astonished to find themselves depicted as spirits in William Mumler's photographs. This eventually led the spiritualists of Boston to turn on him, the spiritualist press to turn on him, and nearly to put him out of business. Uh, He goes quiet for a number of years in the 1860s, from about 1864 till 1869, when he seems to all but shut down operations in Boston, and that might have been the end of him. Uh, but then he decided to uh, pick up stakes and find another place where he might be able to to sell his spirit photographs.
1: And one of his biggest critics was P. T. Barnum, of all people, a person who made his living by taking advantage of people. Many people now would argue, although. I'm sure he certainly didn't see it that way, (laughs) nor did others back then. But he was he was one of Mumler's most vocal critics.
0: He was. As soon as Barnum heard about Mumler's operation in Boston. So this is early 1860s. uh, Barnum wrote to him immediately and asked if he could buy several spirit photographs uh, by mail. So Mumler, of course was happy for the sale and he and he shipped several photographs to Barnum. Barnum displayed him as displayed these photographs in his American Museum in New York City, uh, but they were displayed in his uh section of the museum that was called The Humbugs of the World. So uh showing the ways in which people are gullible, uh, showing the, the great scams of the age as as far as he was concerned. And that's the interesting thing about Barnum, is that he, of course, loved a good scam. Um, he was the king of of, uh, of misrepresentation and fraud. Uh, but he much preferred those that he controlled and could profit from, from. So he saw in spiritualism a kind of a dark side of what he con- considered his, his pure art to be. He thought spiritualists were going too far. Uh, he believed that what he was doing as, as a huckster, um, as a peddler of, of humbug, was uh, allowing people some escape, uh, some entertainment. And he thought that spiritualists were preying on, on the feelings of loss and the tragedies of those who, had, uh, who are mourning their loved ones. And that, for him, was a bridge too far. So Barnum became the great scourge of spiritualists. Spiritualists hated Barnum because he op- so openly wrote against them and used his celebrity uh, to, to go against them uh, whenever he had the
1: opportunity. That's something Harry Houdini would do later as well, right?
0: Yes. Yeah. And it's interesting. It's an interesting point. This, um, these, uh, practitioners of unreality, uh, these people whose, whose career and talent is in creating these moments of escape or these moments of, of mystery, uh, they are, uh, the most severe critics of people who are, who are, um, <laughs> who are high on their own supply, you know, <laughs> people who are, are believing the stories they're selling, who are, re- who are not, um, just recognizing that this is all an art, that this is all artifice, who are trying to convince people because of their own feelings of loss, uh, that they are, um, that they are giving them something real.
1: Hey all, it's Eric. So eating better is easy. With Factor's scrumptious, ready to eat meals. Don't feel like prepping, cooking, or cleaning and tired of takeout? Every Factor meal is fresh, never frozen, chef crafted, and ready to go in just two minutes. There are 35 different options to choose from each week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factor is really flexible for busy schedules, too. Get as much or as little as you need each week, pause or reschedule deliveries anytime. There are breakfast and midday bite options, too, like pancakes, smoothies, and more. And, of course, made with premium ingredients. And Factor has done the math. It's less expensive than takeout, and each meal, dietitian approved to be nutritious. The other day, I downed the salsa-shredded chicken thighs with sweet potatoes and southwest veggie medley. A perfect amount of spice, I thought, and really, really delicious. So head to Factormeals.com slash Notorious50 and use code Notorious50 to get 50% off. That's code Notorious50 at Factormeals.com slash Notorious50 to get 50% off. I highly recommend Factor and really hope you enjoy it as much as I do. Cheers. Hello all, Eric here so you can't fully understand the moment we're living in without knowing where we've been. On every episode of NPR's Throughline, the hosts take a story from the news and go back in time to where it started to answer one important question. How did we get here? If you are interested in the stories behind today's news stories or learning how the past informs the present, you're going to love the Throughline podcast from NPR. I've listened to and enjoyed many episodes of Throughline over the years and learned about a number of historical figures that I had never heard about before and I've gotten insights into well-known historical events. Throughline approaches these figures and events from really interesting new angles, often telling a completely different story than the one that's typically told. Here's an example, an episode I particularly enjoyed it's called The Lord of Misrule, and it's about a man named Thomas Morton, an early New England colonist who butted heads with William Bradford, governor of the Plymouth Colony, and Morton would end up publishing a book critical of the Puritans, a book that is considered to be the first book ever banned in American history. So, let Throughline take you back in time to the source of the stories filling your feed. Listen now to Throughline from NPR
0: Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer.
1: ba 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 Can you talk about Mumler's infamous photograph, the one with Mary Todd Lincoln?
0: Sure. Uh, so Mary Todd Lincoln was known to be a spiritualist. Uh, she had... Spiritualist tendencies, uh, when, when the Lincolns entered the White House, and these only intensified as the Lincoln family went through a number of tragedies, including the, uh, the death of Willie Lincoln while the Lincolns were in the White House, which led her to bring in spiritualist mediums, uh, to hold seances in the White House, uh, kept very quiet at the time, though, though, uh, rumors of it did spread out through the press. And then it further intensified with the death of Abraham Lincoln. Uh, in 1865, so Mary Todd was desperate to communicate with the souls of her dead son and her dead husband, and she had heard tales of Mummler through through the press, and was so taken by them and and so believed in the possibility that they that they might be true, that when she was in Boston years later, years after after the Civil War, after Lincoln's death, uh, in the early 1870s, she visited Boston after Mumler had spent a brief time in New York uh, um, achieved greater infamy and then returned, she visited his studio in disguise, uh, did not identify herself as Mary Lincoln and simply said, I'd like to sit for a, a portrait. And as the Mumlers would later tell the story, they saw enter the studio with her, a spirit which they clearly recognized as the spirit of Abraham Lincoln. So they took a, portrait of Mary Todd Lincoln, gave it to her, and it shows her sitting in all black and mourning um, with the spirit that looks like Abraham Lincoln standing behind her, seeming to embrace her from behind. She believed wholeheartedly in this picture. She showed it to her friends and relations and said it, that it was proof that he had never, in fact, left her side. So this has happened years after Mumler became became notorious in Boston after much of the country had declared him a fraud. And yet still, the believers believed, and they continued to come to him uh, for evidence that they could make contact with people they had loved and
1: lost. So a number of, of Mumler's photographs still exist. Are there any that stand out for you personally?
0: He certainly got better at it uh, through the years. Uh, the first photograph, that, that photograph that I mentioned about his self-portrait where he has the girl who may have been his cousin sitting in the chair next to him, that photograph has an, uh, an unsettling sort of cartoon quality. It seems like he may have taken the image itself and done a bit of drawing on top of it to create this image. But as he goes through his career, he, he becomes more and more effective at this art that he has developed of, of having disembodied spirits appear in the image. He took pictures of many um, of the notables of the day. A picture of a a prominent abolitionist, for example, shows him standing with which seems to be the soul of of a dead slave who who, who has shackles that have been broken. Another portrait may have been of Hannah Mumler, though it's not identified as such. And it shows her with her eyes closed, glancing to the side, and really striking in the display that she has. It really feels like a photograph that is taken uh, out of love Um, and it was really a love story that started this whole thing for William Mumler Uh, Hannah Stewart was in fact a a spiritualist before she met him and there's a case to be made that Mumler got into this whole business simply to be at her side and she perhaps uh, was the brains behind all of this and convinced him of the reality of the pictures that she that they were taking together
1: so he did it for love (laughs)
0: <laughs> I think you did. You did. And, and that's another thing that really enlivens this story that could have been told simply as a matter of, of debunking someone who to us seems like an obvious fraud. You look at the images now and to modernize, they seem so clearly fake. Uh, but I think it's important to, first of all, put ourselves in, in the position of those who were seeing these photographs for the first time uh, to understand that Photography and the ability to look at and read a photograph uh, were also new uh, were also revolutionary that detecting their unreality was a much different matter than it is for us today but it's also important to remember that these people who were so easily to reduce simply to frauds or hucksters is that they also were reacting and, and acting out of a, a complex of, of human human emotions and experiences so it may be the case that William Mumler simply got into this because he saw the opportunity to make a quick buck off of gullible spiritualists but it may also be the case that he was a complicated human just like all of us are and he fell in love with a woman who truly believed in these things and swept up in that he came to believe in it to some extent himself
1: so things turn badly for him when he happens to meet a man named Patrick Hickey Can you talk about that meeting and and what follows from it?
0: When Mumler left Boston, after the spiritualists in Boston basically rose up and said, we don't believe in what you're selling us anymore. uh, Mumler left Boston for New York City, uh, which obviously was a a much larger market for uh, for these types of photographs. New York was really the the epicenter of photography in the country at the time. Um, along Broadway, there were hundreds of photography studios because there were always tourists in town eager to have their portrait taken when they visited the big city. So Mumler went down to Broadway and and set up shop in New York, uh, borrowing space from another another photographer, and quickly started taking spirit photographs um, and and advertising himself as, one who not only could take these images, but could also teach other photographers how to do that, do that themselves. One time when he tried to reach out to the New York photography community was at a, a meeting at the Cooper Union, a meeting of the New York Photography Society. And he went and presented his work and said that he could teach other photographers to do this. And someone in the audience happened to be this man named uh, Patrick Hickey, who was at the time a, a journalist on the science beat. Who was really taken by Mumler's claims and said that he would he would check it out himself. He went to Mumler's studio and what he saw there just so obviously of fraud that he went to the uh, city hall of New York City and he wrote in the complaint book that the mayor kept that allowed every citizen of the of the city to note crimes they thought were being committed. He wrote in the complaint book that this man William Mumler was committing fraud by selling images of of uh, disembodied souls. So the mayor was moved to send his chief marshal to investigate William Mumler, who went and had a spirit photograph taken uh, under a false name, and he too was convinced that Mumler was committing a fraud against uh, the good people of New York. So he had Mumler arrested uh, in 1869 and uh, jailed at, at the New York City Jail, which is known as the Tombs, uh, appropriately. And the trial that followed was really one of the trials of the 19th century. It became news all over the country and really all around the world because it was believed that not just this one huckster, William Mumler, was being put on trial, but this whole movement of spiritualism, the very idea that you could communicate with the dead, was suddenly being put before a judge uh, who would then pass judgment.
1: So the trial itself. Could you tell us about some of the witness testimony, especially the testimony of P.T. Barnum and its impact on the outcome?
0: Well, both sides of Mumler's trial brought in very effective witnesses. Uh, so both the prosecution and the defense had really compelling voices making their case for and against the the believability, the reliability of, of spirit photographs. Uh, the defense brought in uh, quite effectively, a number of people who just purely believed that Mumler had given them something that they desperately wanted, which was this connection to loved ones that they had lost. And perhaps most um, poignantly were those who testified that they had, through Mumler's spirit photographs, been able to see again uh, children who had died young, some as, as young children who, who had died of sickness. Others who were killed in the war. And particularly the, as this is 1869, uh, the wounds of the Civil War are not quite fresh, but they are not quite healed over fully either. Those were the most powerful moments of testimony in, the, during the trial from the point of view of the defense when, when, uh, one of Mummer's clients was able to speak up and say that they could see again, uh, a, a son who, who had not come home, uh, from the front in the South. Uh, that, for Mumler's side was very powerful, and it had the power of moving those in the gallery, listening to the trial, but also, more importantly probably, being reproduced in the press. It really swayed public opinion in his direction. Here he were very sympathetic people uh, who experienced something that so many people had, and through Mumler they had experienced something that so many people wished they could to have this connection again. So, Mummler was able to bring up his clients, uh, to, to be on the stand in his behalf, and that was a great help to his cause. But at the same time, the prosecution brought in a parade of experts, uh, expert photographers who said that Mummler clearly is a fraud, and this is the way that we would do it if we were to make these types of spirit photographs. They said that the art had come along in such a way that it was easy to manipulate images if one knew what one was doing, if one could control the the exposure of images and the chemical reactions involved in development. This was not something that was beyond the grasp of expert photographers of the day. And yet those experts who testified against him, though they had a list of ways that they would produce spirit photographs if, if they were tasked with doing so, they had to admit that when they followed Mumler through his process, they had not seen him do any of it. Uh, So they said that though it's possible to do these, to do this, this is how I would do it if I was to make so-called spirit images. They had to admit that they hadn't seen Mumler do any of it but the star witness for the prosecution was pt barnum barnum was there to say i am an expert in humbug and i can tell you that this is one of them the the very first question that was posed to barnum in his testimony was do you believe in spooks and Barnum surprised the crowd, because he was there as someone who was going to say that all of this was a fraud. He surprised the crowd in, in the courtroom by saying that, yes, he did believe in spooks. But then he proceeded to complicate that answer by saying, they're very easy to see if you believe in them, uh, which is to say that he questioned what comes first, the believing or the seeing. And so he was framing Mungler's photographs as something that you could see and believe in, but you could see and and uh trust their authenticity only if you came to them originally with a sense of belief that this was possible so barnum was brought in really to debunk mumler and he did so persuasively uh really changing the um the, the minds of many who might have have trusted in in mumler at the time um but ultimately it did not have the effect that the prosecution hoped that it might have uh because when, when Barnum was done and it was time for uh, the judge to deliver his verdict, he had to admit that no one had proved that Mumler could not do what he said that he could do. No one had proved that it was not possible for photographs to capture images of the dead. And so given that no one could prove that he had done anything wrong, they had to acquit him. They had to say that we do not have enough here to rule that William Mumler is a fraud.
1: So what happens to Mumler after his acquittal?
0: There's a a way that Mumler's story has been told many times. Um, You find short versions of his life in various places online. And there's often this tendency to to say that after the trial, uh, he died in shame and penniless. (laughs) But it turns out that this is not really the case. Uh, Despite the fact that that telling of the story wants there to be a moral, uh, that he didn't get away with it and then lived to regret that he had tried to dupe so many people. Really, he didn't. He went on to have a long and very interesting career as an inventor, as someone can, who continued to dabble in, in photography. Uh, his greatest claim to fame after the trial was as the inventor of something that he called the Mummler Process, which was a way of streamlining the use of photographs in newspapers. Before the type of process that he created and others along with him were were popularizing around the, the middle of the latter half of the 19th century, if you wanted to have a photograph in a newspaper, you would take a photograph to an engraver or an illustrator, and they by hand would need to make a copy of it, which then would be put into a plate that could be printed along with newsprint in, in a newspaper. But what the Mumler process did was it created a, um, a, a much more efficient way of taking a photograph and making a plate directly from that pot- photograph. So very soon thereafter, thanks to Mumler, but not only to him, thanks to all these other innovations happening in the news media at the time, very soon thereafter, photographs became an essential part of the, the telling and the dissemination of news we start to see the need for photographs to believe that something has really happened. If there's no picture, why would we believe it? So the great irony of Mumler's story ends up being that this notorious falsifier of images plays this role in making images necessary for believing that something has actually happened. So that ends up being the more enduring legacy of Mumler's life. In fact, when he dies in the 1880s, his obituary includes mostly information about his career as an inventor and producing creating the mumler process only the very last line of his obituary says and earlier in his life he was quite well known for his spirit photography <laughs> so w- this moment that that we look back on 150 years later and we think ah this is really the moment that captures this life uh this Spirit photographer's trial for fraud and a very, um, well publicized trial in New York City. That was only a moment of a very interesting life that really, if we use it as a lens on this whole period, we see a, we see a, a very wide view of, of what Americans were thinking about at the time in terms of what they believed and also the types of innovations that they were trying to create that, that were, uh, that they were using to make sense of this new world that was being created all around them.
1: We have these debates now. Is technology sucking our souls? All these kids, you know, and adults, walking around staring at phones and missing the world around them. Admittedly, I I do it sometimes. Uh, But there was a similar debate when photography was in its infancy. While some embraced it immediately, others believed that capturing still images of people lacks some basic... Humanity? I don't know if that's the right word I'm, I'm looking for.
0: Yeah, it's, it certainly seemed un, un, unnatural. I think that it really changed dramatically uh, our, our, um, our experience of memory, our experience of loss, uh, the idea that moments pass and then they're gone. <laughs> if we don't think that that's true, that, that changes um, entirely the way we, we think about experiences we've had. And, and also this idea that the capturing of, of a moment – really alters its reality, uh, because only certain parts of any given scene uh, will be captured in a, in a photograph, and they don't tell the whole truth. Uh, another important part of, of the story here is that many of the photographers who were Mummler's contemporaries, uh, the Civil War photographers like Matthew Brady and Alexander Gardner, uh, when they were off documenting the Civil War with their cameras, they... No less than Mummler were perpetrating a kind of fraud uh, by creating images that they thought captured a larger truth. Uh, the story of, of Alexander Gardner, for example, is that he would wander the Civil War battlefields the day after the fighting had stopped with props. He'd carry a rifle and a cap, and if he found a dead Confederate soldier, he would put the rifle near near the soldier and the cap just off his head as if he had captured the body in his photograph, just as he had fallen. And the most notorious example of this, he and his assistants actually moved a body 40 yards up a hill at Gettysburg to put him in a more photogenic spot uh, because he felt that this would uh, be an easier image to sell and it would teach something to the public about the reality of war. But he needed to He needed to create that reality in order to sell it. So there was this sense of photography even then that uh, photography itself is a manipulation of an image. There is no way in which it is not. Uh, And so as soon as you're aware of that, and people became aware of that from a very early moment with photography, as soon as you're aware of it, how can you trust an image? So there's this tension between needing images to confirm their reality that something has happened and also, um, always distrusting them. And I would, I would argue that this is only increasing now with digital photography everywhere and the proliferation of images, uh, on the web. We don't, as a default, we don't believe images now. Uh, and so much so that it may be to our detriment that we can see something that's real and not believe it if it doesn't meet our uh, our preconceived notions about what should be real. I think that it's been said that collectively, globally, we take about a billion images a day at the moment, and so we are really living with these uh, ripple effect implications of those early photographers um, who were experimenting with with capturing images really creating for the first time the idea that there should be an ethic and an art for capturing images, but not really ha- having a, a fully developed sense about what that should be. We're we're living through something like that right now, um, This uh, a revolution of how we gather images, what sense we make of them, and I think it's really too soon to say what its overall effect will be.
1: One of the, the photos you used for your book is the first known photographic portrait and it's of this young nameless man and as you've already said happened with these earliest of photographs he would have had to have sat there for at least 15 minutes without moving (laughs) and you can you can see in the the picture the 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 discomfort in his eyes I mean it it is a photograph of someone but it's not him in, in his natural state
0: Yes, it's exactly right. Some of these early photographs, they, they affect the way we understand the past, it's so much so that they can give us a sense that is totally disconnected from reality. Another early photograph I include in the book is an early Daguerre image um, of the Boulevard de Tempes in, in Paris, I believe 1837 or so. And it's an image of uh, what seems to be an empty French street scene, a very wide boulevard in Paris, that is uh, empty except for two figures, uh, which is a, um, a boot black, so a shoe shiner, and his client standing there um, on the empty street with only trees and buildings around them. And The story behind this image is that it was taken at around 8 a.m. on a weekday, and if you look at it and you think that you see only two people there, you think, oh, in Paris, they, they all must sleep in pretty late. No one's out on this wide boulevard, uh, even though the day has begun. But in fact, when the photograph was taken, it was actually, the street was actually as crowded with people and commerce and wagons and horses as you would expect of a major city as, as the day begins. But the period that was required for an image to be taken at that time was so long that only those parts of the image that remained perfectly still could be captured. So all those parts of life that were part of the image uh, are lost to history. Simply because of the technology of photography. And it just it reminds us that, um, that when we see images of the past, we are seeing them with the limitations of the technology of the day, and they aren't really capturing lived reality. So that's, that's just, um, another part of the way we need to think about photography that in, in many ways, it allowed the ability to capture the vitality of a scene. But in that capturing, that factality it was lost. That only those elements of the image uh, that were perfectly still can be remembered.
1: So you you talk about this in your book, but if you wouldn't mind articulating it here, could you walk us through how you believe Mumler faked the photographs?
0: At uh, at Mumler's trial in in, uh, in 1869, uh, they brought in a uh, a group of experts to to say how they would have done it. And the theories that they presented were really remarkable, some of them being just that they would have someone sit in their parlor and then very quietly (laughs) they would bring out a person behind them just to stand there as a ghost. And so there were a few of those um, rather outlandish ideas um, behind it or suggested for it, but no one was able to prove exactly as as he did it more recent practitioners of 19th century century photography uh believe that it is simply some kind of um of double exposure that that happened uh through it through a sleight of hand uh so muller would would take his photograph and then at the point at which the camera the glass plate was removed from the camera you could slide another glass plate in with the first glass plate and basically you'd be taking a photograph through an existing glass plate and exposing the image two images from two glass plates onto a single printed photograph so that is is the suggestion that i find most persuasive there's actually a really interesting um uh, lecture that was given up in rochester at the photo history museum in which a practitioner shows how he, this this might have been done and it is it involves both a highly skilled mastery of photographic technique and a magician's sleight of hand, because you need to do a bit of misdirection in order to pull this off. So you need to both be a master photographer and uh, something of an illusionist to do this. And that seems to be what Mumler has done, uh, because he needed to do it in such a way that it could not be seen by anyone who followed him through the process. So it does seem like it was this process of having an image on one glass plate and then an image on another glass plate. And together, when you printed an image from from the glass... Uh, You could make a single image from those two glass plates.
1: So there are people now still that take photographs and claim they've captured images of ghosts, of spirits. It's quite an industry these days with, with all of these ghost hunting shows on TV. I guess it's still going on today, but just in a different form, right?
0: Oh, definitely. We are, we remain a very haunted nation. Uh, we remain a nation, um, of people who believe in ghosts. It, it's something on the order of 80% of Americans believe they have seen or communicated or heard a spirit in some way. It's, it's really remarkable. Um, and, uh, so yes, you can see the, you can see these attempts to photograph ghosts or, or catch them on, um, video images of something spectral happening. But it, more broadly, you can see the way in which um, technology is is contributing to, to this belief. You look at something like social media, particularly Facebook, the way in which people use Facebook to communicate with lost loved ones, with friends who have died. Facebook has a, a dead membership of something like 50 million, 50 million accounts of of the deceased on facebook and if you ever notice the way that people will communicate with accounts of people who who are not there it is a lot like one of these spiritualist seances Um, they are using the technology to communicate uh, with someone who has no more physical presence so you find the same thing with new photography techniques Um, and many people do this quite knowingly they don't believe that they are actively capturing the image of of someone they've lost but it makes them feel comforted to be able to create an image of themselves with a deceased parent let's say or or a child it makes them feel better to use the technology to create the image and i think that that ability does contribute even if they do it quite knowingly it does contribute to the sense of of the reality of presence and so, though the technologies have changed so dramatically from the 1860s when Mumler was working until now, uh, there is something very similar in that. Uh, looking to the new technologies for this very real sense of spiritual comfort.
1: So you have a website, PeterManso.com. I do, yes. And it has more information on your books, upcoming events, contact information. People can share their ghost photographs <laughs> with you?
0: Yes. Yeah. And I should say, uh, you know, I I am always happy to hear with, from people who do have ghost photograph stories. In fact, one of the most touching um, responses I, I heard from about the book when it first came out was an email uh, that just said, please tell me if this is real uh, because I recently lost my mother and I so desperately want to see her again. And, it's really very moving that a story like this, which on some level is just this quirky story from American history, it does tap into something very real, um, and, and it speaks to this hunger that we all feel uh, about reconnecting with people we have lost. And so that's one of the reasons why I, I say in the prologue of the book that I'm I'm not Uh, in the business of of debunking someone like William Mumler, as much as I personally do not believe that he was able to take photographs of ghosts, I I like to take seriously the beliefs of those who who believe. Um, As a scholar of American religion, that's what's, what's most important to me, is understanding what makes people believe and the circumstances in which they believe. So this has just been another story of encountering that. And it's been remarkable that it's provided a window, not just on the beliefs of the past, but the beliefs
1: of today. Well, this has been excellent. Thank you so much for your time.
0: A real pleasure. Thank you so much.
1: Again, I've been speaking to Peter Manso, author of The Apparitionists, a tale of phantoms, fraud, photography, and the man who captured Lincoln's ghost. This has been another episode of the most notorious podcast, broadcasting to every dark and cobwebbed corner of the world. I'm Eric Rivenis, and have a safe tomorrow.